to the Humanity Church Podcast, a place where meaningful conversations around living by faith, being known by love, and becoming a voice of hope are shared with the world every week. We hope that you enjoy this podcast and will join us live on Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, online or at the historic Fox Theater in beautiful downtown Pomona. We also host humanity groups that meet all throughout the city and online to continue the conversation and support you in your ongoing spiritual journey. Find one near you by visiting humanitychurch.com. If you would like to financially support this podcast or the ongoing work at Humanity Church, you can text any donation amount to 84321 and give directly from your phone. Now, here's this week's podcast. We started a conversation a few weeks ago called Love Thy, where we're taking a look at all of the places in the scriptures where it talks about loving fill in the blank, whether it's your enemy or your neighbor or orphans and widows or the sojourner. And we're looking at really the why behind these statements in the scriptures, because the why is so important to this conversation around love. We all know that we're supposed to love, uh, but we may, we may not know the full power behind this radical way of sacrifice, this radical sacrificial living called love. Because at the end of the day, love is sacrifice. It looks a lot like that. Uh, one of the things that Marla and I get to do quite a bit is premarital counseling with couples who are newly engaged or considering getting engaged. And it's one of the things that we enjoy doing because everyone comes in all doe-eyed and excited. And by the end of our sessions, they're a little about to kill each other. Um, <laughs> But usually, like on our, after our first session, we have them go off, and one of their assignments to do is to put together a budget where their finances are combined. So it's like you get to take your income, and you get to take your income. We're going to put it into a joint bank account, theoretically, and you are going to zero that thing out so every dollar has a place to go somewhere. And it's almost inevitable that the next session, they come back either like angry with one another or just having not done the assignment, <laughs> because usually the conversation goes something like this. Well, I wanted more money for the makeup budget, and he doesn't understand how much it costs to get your hair dyed every six weeks. And then he says, you just don't understand how much it costs to fix the car and to have the tools and to do the things that I want to do, and they're at odds with one another, and inevitably both of them are like, they're just asking me to give up everything. And Marla and I just smile and say, welcome to marriage. <laughs> because at the end of the day, yes, it's all sacrifice. And when we make love anything else other than sacrifice, it goes wonky, right? And this is actually where burnout comes in life. Burnout actually has nothing to do with how much you're working. Burnout comes when you're disconnected from the why you're working. When the passion goes out the window, when you no longer understand here's the reason behind it, now you're just following through on the actions. And you've probably experienced that with people you love, when you're just doing the sacrifice out of obligation rather than the connectedness to the why, you will find yourself burned out, resentful, angry really fast. But when you know the why, when you're connected to that, it's like, oh, there's not a lot of room for burnout. There's not a lot of space for me to get exhausted or resentful because there's a larger vision that we're connected to in this. And so we've looked at this conversation around what good is it to love the people who are like us. Last week, we looked at loving our neighbors. By the way, did anyone actually invite their neighbor over for dinner? No? Okay, it's all right. It's theoretical. Uh, I know some people said they talked to them, all kinds of things. You still have a few weeks left, all right? Um, but today, we're going to look at something a little different. Today, we're looking at loving our enemies, 
which is a little different than loving your neighbor, right? <laughs> loving your neighbor is an exciting conversation. Loving your enemies is a whole different departure in this arena of love. And here's actually what I find to be most challenging about this conversation is that when I talk to most people, they would say, I don't have a lot of enemies, or I don't have any enemies. And so this becomes a theoretical conversation rather than an actual conversation about who our enemies are. Now, some of you do have enemies. Congratulations for you, right? <laughs> so this conversation is going to be crystal clear. You're like, I know exactly who Nathan's talking about today. <laughs> but I'd like for you to consider that an enemy is just anyone who doesn't like you. Anyone who, who wishes you harm in some way, shape, or form, maybe big or small. I mean, consider this. An enemy may be the person that when you lose your keys, they're not going to help you look for them, and they're just going to inside kind of go, <laughs> right? They're, they're the people who, like, when, you, uh, when your vacation gets canceled, inside they delight a little bit. Uh, when you don't get the promotion, they're kind of like, yeah, they deserve that, right? They're those people in life. And I think we all have those people in life who at times have wished us harm or at times have just not liked us. In fact, your spouse has probably been your enemy at times based on this definition or your best friend or the people around you. Enemy is kind of a broad term that we use for people who we feel are out to get us in some way, shape, or form. And what is our natural tendency to want to do with enemies? Fight. Cut them, yes. We, we want to fight, right? <laughs> yes. Because our enemies are a threat to us. They may not be a physical threat to us, but they're a threat to our joy. They're a threat to our peace. They're a threat to our well-being in some way, shape, or form. They're a threat to our freedom. They're a threat to our mental health. They're out there. And we don't know when they're going to strike next, right? And so we find ourselves at times living in this space of threat. And so our natural tendency in those moments is to want to fight. Good news, the scriptures tell you that you're supposed to fight. So those of you who are ready to throw down, congratulations. Today we're going to have a great conversation about throwing down. However, there is a however here for those of you who are about to take out your knife and cut someone. There's a specific way that we are to fight that the scriptures give us here. In 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, a passage that many of you have heard before, it says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Instant bummer, right? Because the world wages war against enemies in a very specific way. And it may not always look the same, but it's always the same mindset. It's always the same worldview. It's always the same come from. And that is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you do something to me, I'm doing something back to you. If you take a tooth from me, I'm taking a tooth from you. If you betray me, I'm betraying you in some way, shape, or form over there. It's a war against those people over there, our enemies, and it pits me against them. And what the scriptures say over and over and over again is, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Before you go taking people's eyes and cutting out people's teeth, take a minute. And it actually says, look, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The fight that we are in actually has nothing to do with that person over there. Now, I know in your mind, you're like, no, Nathan, you don't understand this person. It absolutely has to do with them over there. I'm going to ask you to consider, no, it doesn't, <laughs> that the battle you are fighting is actually a spiritual battle. Now, you, not, you may not be a fighting type. You may be here thinking, like, I don't fight my enemies. I, I would never do that. I've never been in a fist fight in my life. I'm a lover, not a fighter. And uh, I'm going to ask you that you still do at times consider uh, waging war flesh against flesh. Because you may not physically fight them, but how many of you have just taken your enemies and written them off? Like, yeah, they're worthless. They're never gonna change. This is how they are. 
Uh, I, I don't even want to give them the time of day. So how many of you have actually spoken curses over them? Maybe not out loud, but in your mind. They're so stupid. They're, they're, they're never going to amount to anything. I, I hope that something horrible happens to them over there. God, get them, right? <laughs> or we become the judge and jury. And we start making judgments about who they are, what they should have, what they shouldn't have in the middle of this. And so we find ourselves maybe not fist fighting, but we find ourselves in a tit-for-tat battle over who they are, what they're capable of, and how we're going to relate to them in this life. And so this conversation continues. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, broke, broke some backstage. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. See, here's the thing. When it comes to our enemies, what we are actually fighting here are strongholds in life. These are the things that hold us captive and hold other people captive in any given situations. And these are things in those moments that are keeping another person in enemy mode. They're keeping someone in this fighting stance against us in life over there. How many of you notice that you have stories in your head that keep you in fighting mode at times? Right? How many of you have ever found yourself in a conversation, I just don't have enough in life? Time, energy, resource, money, whatever it may be. And then suddenly you're on the defense. Like, I don't have enough, so I need to figure out how to get mine. And then suddenly things become a threat, and so now I'm in fighting mode rather than collaboration or abundance mode, and I find myself in a fight for what I need rather than living in the abundance of what I do have. I'll never amount to anything, and so now I got to fight for the little that I have left over over here in this way, shape, or form, and this is what we are called to fight, the strongholds and the stories that we and others are in. This is the fight that we're against. So we are not actually called to fight another human being in our life. We are called to fight the strongholds and the stories. That's what we're up to. And we are actually called to take them captive and to make them subject to Christ. And this is the fight that we are in with our enemies. Or should I say for our enemies over there. Uh, a few years ago, I was going to speak in Kiev at a conference. And... Uh, I get to fly internationally quite a bit, haven't done so in the last four years with the pandemic, but uh, I have this very clear like preparation system that I go through before I get on an international flight. I'm like a bigger dude, and I, I, I'm like, I make sure that I have the aisle seat. I make sure that all of my stuff is charged and ready to go. I make sure that I'm mentally prepared, do my little meditations, do my breathing workouts, all those things, so that when I'm sitting in a chair for 16 hours, I know exactly what's going to happen. And usually I have it all mapped out. Like I look on the website beforehand, what movies are playing. I schedule out my movie schedule for the time that I'm there. I find out what meals are being prepared and I make sure that those are already chosen before. So when it comes to chicken and fish, I'm like the chicken please. And all of those things, right? And so I have my whole life planned out before I get on this flight and it cannot go off schedule or else it will be a very bad trip for me. So I get to LAX and I get up to the counter, I'm flying Air France and they say, excuse me, Mr. Neighbor, would you come with us and escort me to this other line? And they check me in, and they get me up there, and they say, uh, sir, you've been upgraded to premium, and on your way from Paris to Kiev, you've been upgraded to first class. Now, I'm like, what? Now, whenever I find myself in these moments, I tell myself the same thing that I tell everyone else when they find themselves in these moments, act like you're supposed to be there, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm like, inside, I'm like, <laughs> and outside, I'm like, that's cool, you know, if, if that works out for you, that's good. 
you know. So I get on the plane, I get on this luscious chair that I can recline and sleep the entire flight. My plan goes out the window. A French lady comes along with some cheese and wine and says, which would you like? I mean, I'm, I'm like, this is amazing right here in this moment. I'm loving it. And then we take off on our flight, they serve us dinner, and our, our flight begins. And I notice that other people around me, the flight attendants, are serving them all kinds of things, like chocolates and desserts and all, all this good stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not getting anything. And I find myself getting frustrated because I'm like, where's my stuff, right? Where's my lobster roll that they have over there? I should be having. Where's my ice cream bar before you tuck me in over here flying to Paris? Here I am, Mr. Pretentious. And I'm, I'm angry. And, and about three hours into this, I'm, I'm watching all this business happen all around me. And I am frustrated with this airlines. I'm actually frustrated with the people next to me because I'm like, what am I doing wrong? And how do I get what they have over there? So finally, about three hours into this, I hit my call button, and the flight attendant comes over to me, and she goes, Mr. Neighbor, can we help you with anything? And I said, yeah, could I get some water? And she said, is that all you would like? Would you like anything else? And I'm like, what do you have? <laughs> For free, right? <laughs> and she said, oh, Mr. Neighbor, come with me. And she gets me up, and I walk into uh, this room, and it opens up into this huge lounge, and there's a bartender with a bunch of drinks there. There's an ice cream bar. There's a whole snack bar with all kinds of pastries set out there. And the flight attendant said, these are all for you. Whatever you need, it's all complimentary with your ticket. And uh, if you just call the call button, we'll come get you anything you want. Oh, yeah, baby. And, and, and she actually said, I'm, your, I'm like the person assigned to your section. I've been wondering why you haven't hit your call button yet. I just assumed you didn't want anything. Right? And I'm like, oh, we are going to see how this call button works, right? <laughs> we are going to test the limits of this call button here in this moment. Because here's what I realized is that, is that it wasn't until that moment that I recognized my status, right? Because up until that moment, I had forgotten that I was first class. I was acting economy, <laughs> but I was actually first class in that moment, and it created this anger inside of me that others were getting what I wasn't getting, that they were being served in a way that I wasn't being served, that life was showing up for them in a way that I wasn't getting. And so I found myself in this fighting stance because I wanted to get what they had, and it, everything shifted when I realized, oh, I'm first class. I have access to everything I need here in this moment. So I'm going to ask you to consider your enemies through a different lens this morning, that you would not see them as the person trying to attack you over there, but that you would be willing to see them through the lens that they were those who have simply failed to recognize their status that they are those who have forgotten that they have access to first class and they're acting economy in this moment. They've forgotten that they're image bearers of God and they are acting as if they do not have the access to the lounge in this moment and it's creating friction for them and it's moving on over to you. Because here's the thing, when you know that you are chosen by God, when you know who you are and whose you are, you have room to forgive and overlook freely. You have space for access to healing and redemption and rejuvenation in that moment. You are no longer in competition 
connection with other people. You see other people as fellow image bearers and creators and those who were created with a hope and a future in mind by God himself. So you have grace to extend because grace has been extended to you and you have love to extend because love has been extended to you. What if our enemies are simply those who have forgotten who they are? And now they're stuck in enemy mode against you. Because when they look out at the world, they're saying, why do they get that and I don't? Why is life showing up for them like that and I don't in some way, shape, or form? And it is through, I'm going to ask you to consider radical sacrifice and love that we remind them of their status. That it is our job to actually remind them who they are rather than reinforce the stronghold that they have and reinforce the story that they have about not having enough and not being the one who gets what they need and not having everything that is desired in life. That we do not enforce the story with repayment, but rather we are the ones with our love who hold up a mirror and say, hey, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Because somewhere along the line, you've forgotten. And this is why our fight is against all the ways that others are pretending to have a lack of status. The strongholds they find themselves in. The arguments that have this person bound up over there in fighting stance. And, and Paul actually continues this conversation around loving our enemies in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 14. It says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, you've probably heard this phrase because it's a popular phrase, hurt people hurt people. How many of you heard that phrase before, right? That hurt people hurt people. And this is, I would say, a very true story. And actually, this is why we are called to bless our enemies instead of cursing them. Because whatever has caused your enemy to be in enemy mode, to fight in some way, shape, or form, I'm gonna ask you to suggest is because of the curses that have been spoken over them. That because someone has spoken things over their life or they've been speaking things over their life that are informing them that my best option is to be an enemy to this person over here, to attack them, to make their life a little less beautiful, a little less enjoyable, a little less exciting over there. And we find ourselves in those spaces looking at our enemies going, oh, they're over there entangled in this curse that's causing their behavior to do whatever they're doing over there in the middle of this. See, because here's the thing is that usually the screwy things that we do in life that affect other people, that hurt other people, if you look back, usually you don't do them because you're a horrible person, right? But when you, when you betray someone in that moment, I, my, I, my guess, my hallucination is that you weren't like, ha, 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 I'm gonna betray them, right? When you hurt someone, I don't think that it's usually premeditated. You're not usually like, how can I really hurt this person, right? How can I let my spouse down? How can I show my friends that I'm unreliable? That's right. See, you do what you do because there have been lies spoken over you. 
because you believe a lie about yourself or about others, whether it's there's not enough or I'm a failure or God's not gonna show up for me or who God is, that God's not who he is, that life isn't gonna show up the way it's supposed to be. And so we find ourselves in our behavior as a result of lies and curses that have been spoken over us. And so we do this. And so when we look out at someone who's operating in a lie over there and we call them an enemy and then we choose to curse them what we are actually doing is just reinforcing the curse on their life. We're just reinforcing the story on their life. We're just reinforcing that this is the way life is over there. Because how many of you even recognize that there's a cycle of curses even in your own family? Now, I'm not talking like Harry Potter, like your dad didn't like pull out a magic wand and said, curse upon you, right? But how many of you notice that there's just, there's just things that get passed down from generation or to generation, whether it's an addiction or whether it's impatience or whether it's anger or whether it's emotional disconnect or whether it's something spiritual that's going on, that there is even this passing down of lies and curses. It's this cycle of dysfunction that get passed on from generation to generation. It may, may not look the same from generation to generation, but still it continues in the middle of this. You fellow image bearer over there, you who were made to reflect God himself were actually made to intervene in the cycle of lies and curses in this world. You were actually designed with that mission in mind, that you would be the person that looks out at others that are stuck in the cycle of their own lies, that are stuck in the cycle of their own cursing and say, I refuse to allow this cycle to continue, so I choose love, I choose sacrifice for you in the middle of this moment. Your life was made to be a stand against the pain and the suffering and the dysfunction in the human story. And every time that you choose love, over cursing, you partner with Jesus in the redemption of humanity around you. You can clap for that. That's all right. Every time you choose, I refuse to repay evil with evil, but I choose to bless in those moments. You say, I am interrupting this, and this will no longer continue in this space, here in this place. After all, isn't that what Jesus does with us? He doesn't look at us in our enemy stance against him at times and say, how can I curse you more? Yeah, that's right. He doesn't look at you and say, how can I rain down suffering upon this person? He doesn't take out his lightning bolt so he can smote you in some way, shape, or form. See, when Jesus looks at us stuck in our own strongholds, in our own lies, in our own curses, he looks at us and he says, while you are still sinning, I will die for you. While you are in the active process of betraying me, I choose to sacrifice for you in love in the middle of this. And he continues to choose grace and redemption over and over and over and over again. And then we get to do the same with every single person that we come in contact with, especially our enemies who have forgotten who they are and are stuck in the cycle of lies and curses that they found ourselves, themselves in. See, the world around us is filled with people who have simply forgotten who they are. And it is our job 
to stop the craziness and to pause to see them through the eyes of Jesus and remind them this is why we do not repay evil with evil. See, the moment we choose anything other than love, we forget who we are. We forget the gift that has been given to us. We forget the redemption that's been given to us. We forget the forgiveness that's been given to us. And the cycle of destruction not only continues because of us, but it is fueled because of us when we refuse to recognize who we are. And then Paul wraps this up by saying, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. See, I think some of us think about this conversation around loving your neighbor a little bit like being Switzerland, where we're neutral, right? Where we're like, you know what? Fine. I won't curse them. And you know what? I'm not going to, like, do anything evil to them. I agree, Pastor Nathan, right? But, but this actually takes it to a whole other level. Because it actually says, do not get revenge. And then it says, take an active stance in restoring them. See, I, I think this, what Paul's telling us is that this isn't just a, hey, leave them alone stance. Because I think several of us are comfortable with that, right? Because if, if it just said, hey, leave your enemies alone, we'd be like, cool. Sign me up for that, right? I will delete them off Instagram right now. No problem with that. Or when he says, hey, don't curse them, we roll our eyes, and we're like, fine, I won't curse them, right? But... He actually takes it to the next level, and he says, when they have a need, you need to meet it. See, this is not a passive stance saying, all right, I refuse to curse them, or I'll leave them alone even. This isn't even a neutral stance. This is like, I'm going to get into your life and find out where you're hungry so I can feed you. I'm going to find out where you're thirsty so I can give you a glass of water. I'm going to find out where you have need so that I can meet it in this moment. And we are to continually, actively pursue them where it's appropriate. And then it says, leave room for God's revenge. Leave room for God to do whatever he's going to do. And then I love this verse because it says, because that's like heaping burning coals on their head. And we like that. We're like, yes, God, get them, right? Take those burning coals. Make them real hot. Heap them on their head, Jesus. Right? I'll give them a sandwich, but take those coals, right? And we find ourselves really excited about this part over here, right? But there's even a catch here, right? Everywhere there's a catch, right? (laughs) And here's the thing. Even God's wrath and vengeance looks very different from our idea of what wrath and vengeance should look like. See, because God is not actually overly interested in spiting the wicked. I guarantee you that when God looks at your enemy or the people that we call enemy, the people that are looking to harm you or the people who are out for your despair or your hopelessness, 
that when he looks at them, he's not like, ha, 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 they're being kind to them. Now I can finally get my revenge. See, the scriptures actually say it's God's kindness that is his vengeance. That what God's actually interested in is showing kindness to those people who are stuck in their strongholds, who are stuck in their stories, who are stuck in their lies, who are stuck in their curses over there. And his revenge looks a lot more like transforming their hearts than it does destroying them in any way, shape, or form. It's actually quite ironic that the man who wrote these words just years before was actively killing people who called themselves followers of Jesus. Now, if anyone, God, wanted to heap burning coals on their head, you would think it would be him, right? Here he is killing thousands of followers of Jesus in extremely brutal ways. And here God gets a hold of him, and in that moment, God's vengeance was not to kill him. God's vengeance was not to destroy him in that moment. God's vengeance was to transform his heart and to change the trajectory of his life so that he could become one of the most powerful messengers that we would ever know. And that here he is actively telling us to forgive our enemies because he recognized that when I was deserving of God to actually heap burning coals on my head, what he chose was kindness. What he chose to transform my life into becoming one of the greatest messengers of God that we will ever know of. And he goes on to write almost all of the New Testament, informing us of who this God is of love. See, if God does that with someone like Paul, we can certainly do that with our employees, with our family members, with those we struggle with, with those we call enemies. Again, God is not interested in seeking revenge on your enemies. He, too, is interested in reminding them of who they are. And if you refuse to seek your own revenge, if you choose to not repay evil with evil, but to partner with him in this, what happens is that he will not only remove those enemies from your life, but those enemies will become your allies. There will be a point where those enemies pause and say, oh, I am reminded of who I am, and I'm reminded of what's available to me, and it was because of this person who I once called enemy that showed me love, and everything gets flipped in that moment. There's this tribe in the Ecuadorian Amazon called the Wadani, and they were headhunters, and there were several different tribes in the Wadani, and they found themselves uh, constantly in civil war with one another. They constantly found themselves fighting with one another. In fact, because of their headhunting tendencies, and actually several of these tribes were cannibals, uh, they would often die very early because a tribe would attack another tribe, they would kill them, and it was just a dog-eat-dog -dog world that they found themselves in. And there were five men who were followers of Jesus who felt called to go into this tribe to remind them of who they are, to remind them that they were not called to kill one another, but to live at peace, and that there's a God who actually wants to transform the story. In fact, sociologists, when they look back at this tribe, found that there were almost no grandparents in any of the villages, because people didn't live usually past the age of 25. So they recognize not only is there a spiritual dynamic that's happening here that's causing enemy to attack enemy, but there's this 
spiritual component that is causing people to rebel against one another. So in 1956, a group of five men decided that they were going to fly into this part of the Amazon after doing some massive study. One of them was named Jim Elliott. He was a friend of my grandfather's. And one of the other men was named Nate Saint. And they get on this airplane and they fly into the jungles there. Their, their mission was actually documented in this film called End of the Spear. There's this scene in the movie that I love where Nate Saint is talking to his son Steve in the middle of this. And young Steve is worried about his dad going into the Ecuador Amazon because of the violence of these tribes. And the son said, Dad, if the Wadani attack, will you defend yourself? Will you use your guns? And Nate Saint responds with, Son, we can't shoot the Wadani because they aren't ready for heaven yet. And I think about that when, when I think about my enemies. Not that necessarily they aren't saved or whatever, but in that, but I, I just think, man, they're not living in heaven right now. So they, they can't have my anger. That would be foolish of me. They're in a space where they're literally living in hell right now. And whatever they're going through must be awful because of the way that they're engaging me. And so I can't use my guns right now because they're not ready for that. It's interesting because all five men, oh, we lose this? There we go. All five men flew into the Ecuadorian Amazon and were greeted by a tribe of men and all five of them were instantly speared on the spot and killed. It made news all over the world at that moment in 1956. The powerful part of that story is their wives packed up all of their kids and decided that they were going back into the jungle to be with these people. They decided that they were going to forgive and not only forgive, but they were going to love and that they were going to feed those who were hungry and to give a drink to those who were thirsty. And so Elizabeth Elliot and Miss Saint and some other people packed up all their things, took their young children into the jungles and lived in this Ecuadorian tribe in the Amazon for years. And so Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, grew up with this tribe. In fact, there was a man who was a chief in the village. His name was Mikayani. And he became really good friends with Mikayani. In fact, he, as he grew up, he, he often came back and visited him. When he went off to college, he would spend his summers in this rainforest with this tribe. And I'm, when we're talking about tribe, we're talking about like loincloths and eating bugs, right? So this isn't like a, a five-star resort somewhere in the Ecuadorian rainforest. We're talking about primitive society here. And so Nate, or Steve, and Mikayani found themselves in a really powerful relationship growing up. And there was this moment in little Steve, in Steve's life when he came back to visit Mikayani where he, uh, Mikayani finally told him, I need to show you something. I need to show you something in the jungle that I think you're ready to see and I'm ready to show you. And I'd like for you to see this clip right now. So because this is a podcast, you are obviously unable to see what the audience saw. So let me walk you through that. In this clip from End of the Spear, Mikayani took Steve Saint to the beach where the killing of his father took place. While he was there on the beach, he informed Steve Saint that he was actually the one who had speared his father. And that in that moment, he saw his father enter into an eternity that he didn't have words for. So Mikayani grabs his spear, hands it to Steve Saint, puts it up to his chest, as if to allow Steve Saint to kill him there on the spot. And in that moment, 
Steve Saint says something really profound. He says, no one took my father's life. He gave it freely and he threw down the spear. And this is how the clip ends with these really powerful words. My father lost his life at the end of the spear. And it was at the end of the spear that Minkayani and I found ours. It's true that my dad and his four friends were not given the privilege of watching their children and grandchildren grow up. But Minkayani is a grandfather. It's the first time in Wadani history they've ever had so many grandfathers. He's not only a grandfather to his own children, he's a grandfather to mine. My dad would have liked that. Through the years, people could always identify with our loss, but they could never imagine the way that we would experience gain. Love your enemies. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take vengeance on them. If your enemy is hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them water. See, this is how we partner with God in redeeming humanity. And do not let anyone, anyone, allow you to forget who you are in the middle of their actions. We are called to be those who love our enemies. Thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope that it was a meaningful experience and look forward to having you listen in next week for another conversation from the heart and soul of Humanity Church. You can find more information about our community at www.humanitychurch.com.